is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool, and he's also the advisor for The Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. It's so good. Thank you, Allison. Thank you very much. I'm not the only one who thinks it's good. Like three other people think it's good. No, too, tell so. your story. Tell your story. It's a funny story. My funny st- about my article? Yes. Oh, uh, okay. So I was a member event. Motley Fool readers were there. I was c- sort of folding my arms, covering my name tag, so the person I was talking to didn't know who I was. Not intentionally. Not just intentionally. Talking about safe withdrawal rates in retirement, and the guy said, "Oh, you should read this article by Robert Brogame. It is like the best article about safe withdrawal rates I have ever read." And then I revealed my true identity. <laughs> it was very nice. I wish my mother were there. And then, like a, a heavenly light shone down oh, upon your head, and, yeah. the man and that's was like, why oh I'm half bald. Yeah. Um, yeah, you actually met, met a bunch of listeners at the member event. We did, yes, and, and it was so nice to hear the nice things that they said about you, Allison. Yeah, yeah, that's, I, that's I really actually, what it's about. I actually didn't get to hear any of the nice things that they said about me. They were nice. So, like what? Uh, that you're nice. You're very nice, very funny, very mm-hmm. punchy, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, smart, good looking. Yeah, everyone who listens to our podcast thinks you're good looking. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Today we're going on a fascinating journey around the world, only to realize that the best place to be is home. Brian Richards heads up our international endeavors here at The Motley Fool, and he joins us today to talk about how people in other countries invest. But first, we'll answer your question about the right amount of insurance to have. And before we're done, we'll dig into some presidential personal finances. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. All right, it's time for Answers, Answers. This week's question comes from Rich. His question is about insurance. Simply put, he writes, how much do I need to have and what kind? Go. <laughs> Exciting world of insurance. Okay, number one, you need property insurance. So for your automobiles and your homes, or if you're a renter. And the principle with all of that is to get the biggest deductible policy as you can because you want to use insurance for the big catastrophic expenses. You don't want to be using it to pay off. Um, little things, a cracked window or something like that, because the more claims you make, the more you're going to pay in premiums later on. So, homeowner's insurance. If you're a renter, you should also have it, because part of those is liability insurance. So, that can uh, pay off if someone tries to sue you, they're at your house and they trip over something. Um, So, you want to make sure you have that. Uh, The other is life insurance. You only need life insurance if someone relies on your income, or if you provide services that would cost someone else uh, money to replace. So, you're a parent, that's the obvious example. You're raising kids, you need life insurance. Even if you're a stay at home parent, you're doing something, providing lots of services, you should also have life insurance. People who uh, don't have kids, people whose kids are out of the house, you probably actually no longer need any kind of life insurance. And you, a lot of people um, actually have life insurance for their kids. Gerber sells this. It's probably actually not necessary. Um, Simply put, the best type of life insurance is term life insurance, pure life insurance, and you just need it for as long as you are paying. For me, I think generally, I think in terms of when the kids are out of the house and out of college, at that point, I don't think we need any more life insurance. You can buy something called whole life or cash value insurance, which is sometimes called permanent insurance, um, which has an investment component to it. Unfortunately, those are usually more expensive. The investments aren't so great. What you can do if you have one of those policies is do something called a 1035 exchange to move it to something like an annuity so it makes it a better investment prospect. 
And the last type of insurance that you may or may not need is disability. And you only need to do that if A, people are relying on your income, and B, you are in a job that you being in good physical shape is important. So for me, as a writer, I spend 90% of my time sitting at a desk reading and writing. I personally don't have disability insurance, other than what we all get through Social Security. But the more you, uh, your income relies on you being able to move around and do certain things, you should consider disability insurance. The problem is, it's very expensive, so shop around. We once went to a financial advisor, my husband and I, and the guy was like, okay, you guys need you know, he like I don't, I don't want to say he pretended to do some calculations, but he was like tap 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 tap, and he was like you need you each need a million dollar life insurance policy, and I was like really like really we need that much, and that just seemed like too much like not to be like well if Ron dies I'm gonna be getting married a few years after that so I don't need that income or you know but I was just like a million seems like a lot. Uh, the, the rule of thumb here is ten times your salary. As a as a base now, everyone who is covered by Social Security, will, their survivors will get some money if they pass away. So you can use a calculator, do that tappity tap thing, and you factor <laughs> in all those benefits and all that um, to figure out how much. So a million actually doesn't sound that high to me, okay. especially when you're talking about term life insurance and you're in your twenties or thirties. Getting an extra hundred thousand, two hundred, three hundred thousand of insurance is actually pretty cheap, and you 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 don't want to err on being too cheap with your life insurance, so I don't think actually that's a, a bad amount in terms of how much life insurance to have. All right, so homeowners or renters, life term life insurance, and then disability insurance. Boom. You got it. There you go. And if you have a question just like Rich, you can reach us at answers at fool.com. You can also reach us on Twitter. We are at Answers Podcast. So we here at Motley Fool Answers do love answering your questions. After all, it is in the name. But now we would like to ask you guys some questions, if you don't mind. We want to make sure that we're talking about the money issues that matter to you. So pretty please go to www.fool.com slash answers survey to answer our five question, very simple survey about the topics that you want to hear. And as a token of our appreciation, since this is a very international sort of episode, you'll get a very special internationally flavored video of me making a fool of myself. Enjoy. Again, the website is fool.com forward slash Answers survey. That means there's two S's in the middle. Answers survey. Thanks a lot. I'm American, and in true American fashion, it's easy for me to forget that most people in the world aren't American and that their experiences are totally different from mine. And they probably didn't grow up watching Reading Rainbow and don't even know the theme music by heart. But today we're joined by Brian Richards, and he's in charge of the Motley Fool's international outposts, including UK, Canada, Singapore. And he's going to offer us some perspective on what it's like to be an investor outside the US. Brian, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, here's a fun fact. Did you guys know that we actually have listeners in over 110 countries, including Singapore, Australia, and at least one person in Uganda? So, Hello um, out there. Our listeners are a very cosmopolitan bunch. How do you know that? Well, that, uh, well, because we have software, and the only stats we know about our listeners is how many of them there are, and where they live, and um, what device they use to listen to our show. 
Interesting. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm stalking our <laughs> listeners, but it's just that's part of the software that we use to distribute the podcast, and it delivers back those stats. Very so. interesting. Hello, everyone, and one in Uganda. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And I'm hoping that the one person in Uganda was like, oh my gosh, they're talking about me! <laughs> but saying it in whatever language they speak in Uganda. I don't know. Whatever. All right. So, hi, Brian. Thanks for coming. How did you get into the international side of things? Like, why, why are you basically an expert to come here and talk to us about this, is what I want to know. What are your credentials, sir? Oh, dear. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't know it was going to start like this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, my credentials are. Uh, let's not talk about my credentials. <laughs> we brought you on here as an expert. No, I, I have overseen uh, part or or most of our international operations for the last three years here at the Fool. Um, that's the UK, Germany, Canada, and, uh, and and recently Singapore. We are also in Australia. In 2007, I co-wrote a chapter in the Motley Fool Million Dollar Portfolio book on international investing. I did not um, know that. Yeah. About 10 years ago, we had uh, a speaker come through Motley Fool HQ, Jeremy Siegel, the famous Wharton professor, the, the perma bull on stocks. And he had just written a book called The Future for Investors. And he made a, a somewhat controversial claim at the time, bold claim, that U.S. investors should have 40% of their portfolio in international stocks. And I read the book. I listened to Jeremy Siegel explain the, 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 the thinking behind that thesis. And I was pretty well convinced by it. So you talk about how there are a lot of great companies all over the, around the world that you can, can invest in. But for some people living in countries outside the US, it's actually not so great to be an investor. So they have these great companies, but just out of reach. That's right. I mean, I think if if there's something I've learned in my three years of being involved in um, the Motley Fool's international efforts, it's that we have it pretty good here in the U.S. Um, and we probably take these things for granted. And there's certainly a lot wrong with the way that the investment industry works in the U.S. and the financial markets work in the U.S. But it's a, it's a pretty good structure and system overall. And I'll share a few reasons why. The first big one is fees. Morningstar does a report called the, the Global Investor Experience. It's issued every few years. In the 2013 report of the 26 or 30 uh, countries that they studied, the U.S. was the only country in the entire world that was given a letter grade rating of an A. And that was an overall letter grade rating. If just just to use a, a very stark example, the the fee structure in the U.S. for an equity mutual fund, the average expense ratio for an equity mutual fund here in the U.S. is 0.82%. So that ain't bad and certainly has been driven down by ETFs and the likes of Vanguard and, and the rise of index funds. In Canada, our neighbor to the north, the average expense ratio in Canada is 2.42% for an wow. equity mutual fund. You're paying just about three times more for a stock-based mutual fund in Canada, which is outrageous in my opinion. As um, a U.S. investor, you would have to search high and low to find a U.S. fund that charges that much. You would have to really try. Yeah, <laughs> You would have to be, have an expensive fund being sold by a high-priced broker exactly. to be paying that much. Vanguard in the U.S. is, you know, they, they captured 20% of all fund inflows last year. Um, they're now overseeing $4.1 trillion globally. Only 8% of that is outside of the U.S., though. So they have 3.8 trillion U.S. assets, and then they have 328 billion in the rest of the world. And now that's, that's not 
for lack of trying, they have 13 offices outside of the U.S. I mean, they, they're trying to get a foothold. They're a fairly minor player in Canada, for example. And I think that the rise of Vanguard has helped bring down that for U.S. investors. It hasn't really done the same for mutual fund investors in the rest of the world. And of course, Vanguard, bro, remind us what's so special about Vanguard and what they do. Vanguard is a company that is very focused on fees, partially due to their structure. Like technically, the company is owned by the people who own the shares of the funds, so they don't have the same sort of structure that they're like a publicly traded company and they're trying to make profits for their shareholders. So they relentlessly focus on costs, and they are also the folks who brought the index fund to the mass market. And index funds. Just follow a common index like the S&P 500, but because they don't have to pay a manager and analysts, they can keep fees very, very low. And since you mentioned Morningstar, many of their studies indicated the best predictor of future success for a mutual fund are the fees. So if you're paying higher fees, you are much more likely to underperform the market and not get a good result. It's not just mutual funds. In, in, in Singapore, for example, it, it costs a lot more to just buy a stock through a discount brokerage than it does in the U.S. It's not always priced per trade like it is here. Like TD Ameritrade is nine ninety nine a trade, or yeah. Fidelity is seven ninety nine or whatever. In Singapore, it, it often is a percentage of the value of the trade, but it ends up being often two times what you would pay to buy or sell a stock here in the U.S according to our full Singapore team, which has written quite a bit about this issue. Wow. So, just to buy, like, just for even an individual investor to buy a stock, it's they're going to give up... It know, could eat up as much as 20 about bucks 20 or, bucks. Yeah. Wow. And so, you know, we've taken for granted that fees in general have come down as more people have gotten invested and more innovation has come through products like index funds, which spawned exchange-traded funds, ETFs, and things like robo-advisors. The U.S. is at the... I'm going to regret saying this, but at the vanguard of financial innovation <laughs> um, with things like robo-advisors, which have brought down fees and put pressure on regular financial advisors. So, just across the board, the fee structure in the U.S. is typically more advantageous than you see in other countries around the world. Got it. Good. All right. What's another reason why it's awesome to be an investor in America? Yeah. So, an- another one is just choice. In Singapore, there are, I think, 18 or 19 exchange-traded fund ETFs um, that you can trade without having to go through an additional layer of screening that you're like a sophisticated investor. So, there, 15 of them are stock-based, three are bond ETFs, and I think there's a gold one as well. In the U.S., in in the last study that I saw from the Investment Company Institute, I think there are almost 1,200 ETFs. That you can buy. I yeah. mean, anything. Now, not all of those are great. You know, I, I don't know that anybody needs a six X leveraged bear ETF um, <laughs> in their portfolio. At least any retail investors need that. But the choice is massive, and you can buy pretty much any country index in the world. If you're in the U.S., you can buy any you know sector strategy, any um, asset class that you can think of. So we have a lot more choice. The other thing, there's this there's this behavioral finance notion of home market bias, where you're biased to things that you know that are around you. To use Canada again as a stark example, the Canadian stock market writ large represents somewhere around three, four, five percent of global stock market capitalization. Canadian investors, according to a survey that was done a couple of years ago, own sixty percent or more of Canadian stocks. And the Canadian market is 
pretty well concentrated in financial stocks, in energy stocks, and in utility stocks. So that's about two-thirds, 70% of the market is just those three sectors. So by being concentrated in their home market, they're really concentrated toward energy and financials, right? Whereas in the, what could go wrong with those? What could go wrong with those, as we've seen... <laughs> The, the Canadian so market. Stable. Everyone needs money and oil. It could never go down. <laughs> the Canadian market has been hit by the decline in the oil pr- in the price of oil. The Canadian currency has been hit by the decline in the price of oil. Canadian real estate, particularly in um, oil producing regions like Alberta, have been hit by the decline in the price of oil. So, so you're saying now is a, the time to move to Canada? And well, now is the time to vacation in Canada yeah. if you're living in the U.S. <laughs> and paying in U.S. dollars because it's about thirty percent cheaper than the U.S. dollar right now, and Ooh. it's it's not been this cheap in in at least ten years. So there's this notion of the home market bias where in the U.S. we have access to 5,000 publicly traded stocks ranging across all of the big global investment classification standard sectors, healthcare, tech, um, utilities, financials, et cetera, et cetera, consumer staples, consumer discretionary. In other countries, you don't see enough of those companies in those sectors to make it worth your while. So there are consumer discretionary stocks in Canada, but there just there isn't enough to make a whole sector out of them, right? Like you have Lululemon and you have a few other brands like that, but the smaller the stock market, the more acute it is, of course. And so, the U.S. market is is the largest. It has the most choice. Um, I think that's something that we take for granted. That if you buy, you can just buy the S and P five hundred, and you'll probably be okay. As John Bogle, founder of Vanguard, always says, as Warren Buffett has said, in other markets, if you're if you're buying the country index, you're you're by and large you're betting on a fairly concentrated slice of the overall stock market pie. And if you buy the S&P 500 too, you're more likely to get these companies that are truly global companies. So even if you just stick with the US market in that part of your portfolio, you're still getting an exposure to the rest of the globe through these companies like McDonald's and Walmart and all these companies that do business overseas. Um, still, most US investors are, have their own home bias, right? I mean, most of us are not investing that 40% yep. that Jeremy Siegel has recommended, lower. right? So we all suffer that as well. It's just that if you suffer from that bias, you're probably going to be better off being a biased U.S. investor than being a biased investor in some of these other countries. Yep. Now it brings us to your third and potentially final reason. We'll what? see. Awesome. All right. Ooh, maybe there's a bonus <laughs> with bonus point number four. Maybe. All right. Third reason why it's awesome to be an American investor. This is a little bit more of a um, of a nuanced point, but awareness, participation. I mean, in the the U.S. has the good fortune of having the number one performing stock market in the world from 1900 to 2014. There's a great report that comes out every spring called the Credit Suisse Global Investment Returns Yearbook. It measures 115 measured last year 115 years worth of data across 26 countries. The U.S. had the number one performing market from 1900 to 2014. Yay! Yay. Um, Australia was was in second, but of the 26 countries studied from 1900 to 2014, in 25 of them, stocks outperformed bonds. And cash. Um, the only country, you, know, you guys want to take a guess, the only country that that wasn't the case in? China. China! Yeah. Which, you know, which went communist in the middle of the 20th century. So it's uh, never it, good for your investment ex- portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The point is, stocks outperform other asset classes over long periods of time 
across the world. It's been proven for over a century in multiple different markets spanning world wars and various calamities and catastrophes of the 20th century and the early 21st century. You know, the idea that inflation is scary and what are the alternatives for your money? Well, the single best thing that you could have done over the last 115 years is put it in stocks in 25 out of these 26 countries. And yet less than one out of five in the UK and Germany is actually invested in the stock market. Now, are they not investing because barriers are high in their country or because they don't need to invest for retirement because the government's going to take care of them? That's a great or question. Both, or a combination and, of A and B. Well, I think that it's largely structural. So the idea that they don't feel like they have to. I mean, we're getting to like one of my exceptions to the, hey, it's great to be an American investor rule, which is what, so when we are investigating new markets and looking at, at entering there, we try to talk to as many people native to that country as we can. Yeah, when the Motley Fool wants to expand. To exactly. It, yeah. you know, when we went into Germany, for example, the common refrain was, well, why do you want to talk to me? I don't, I don't invest. And I said, well, that's exactly why I want to talk to you. Why don't you invest? And the answer was like, well, I've got universal health care paid for by the government. University education is free in Germany, paid for by the government. And what they call pensioner benefits, retirement benefits, tend to be much more generous in Europe than in the U.S. And, um, and so the idea that you, could, you couldn't live off of whatever Social Security pays out, Robert, eight, $800 a month. Yeah, yeah, the average annual benefit is around $16,000 okay. these days. So like, there's, there's a fair amount of uh, investing based on fear of the future in the U.S. and the fact that you know tuition costs are rising, so you need to invest for your, your kids' or grandkids' education if, if that's what you want to do. Retirement is not certain, and the government benefits here aren't that great. You know, healthcare costs are another major anxiety source for for Americans, and so you need sort of rainy day savings. And the best place to to sock it away traditionally is in the stock market here. That's not the case in in other countries. So I think there is a large structural reason for this uh, lack of awareness. But I would argue <laughs> there is a risk associated with investing in the stock market. There is also a giant risk in expecting pension benefits that you might get in Germany, for example, today to be exactly the same as when you know a 30-year-old is going to retire in, in 30 plus years. I think we are seeing, and there's certainly there, there's rhetoric around the instability of the, um, the social safety nets in, in these countries around the world. And I think you'll likely see more and more put in the hands of the individual. Many of these countries have the same demographic issues that we do. Yep. In that, you know, here in America, we have the baby boomers who are going to be retiring and not enough workers coming behind them to pay the promised benefits. Most European countries have the exact same issue, if yep. not even worse. Japan has the same issue. Yep. China has the same issue because of the one-child policy. So I think you're absolutely right that anyone who's... You can't bank on getting those benefits, whether in one of those countries, or even if you're in the U.S. and you expect to get a pension, a traditional pension, the same issue is going to be happening 10, 20, 30 years ago, which is it's actually already happening to some pensioners. Just ask the people who retired yep. as employees of Detroit. I mean, you exactly. just cannot bet on government benefits being the same decades from now. So I, I'm doing nothing is a risk in those countries, and I think it's, it's one that people don't fully appreciate. There's also a lack of 
financial commentary in a lot of these markets. I mean, you don't have a lot of people like us. This is the self-serving part uh, who who are like pounding a drum talking about the historical returns of the stock market and the idea that the longer you own stocks, the less risky they actually become. And while they're risky in the short term, they are better than any other asset class. Is some of this cultural in terms of like Americans being more comfortable with risk and being entrepreneurial, whereas in other countries they might be more conservative? Um, we know that people use credit cards differently in other countries in, in terms of actually not being as comfortable with that as we are. I think that's right. And I think, you know, as I look at the countries that are by far the most directly engaged in stocks around the world, the US and Australia, and, you know, we're these sort of castaway, like frontier kind of Wild West um, cowboy kind of mentality. I, I hate to think like a national stereotype exists to the present day and how we you know, live out our financial lives. But I don't know, there's, there's, there does seem to be something to it that whatever we rebelled against, the colony <laughs> um, has, has sort of seeped into our character. and it's Our and, national and does, DNA. Exactly. And in ways that it doesn't necessarily exist in, say, in Europe, which has a social safety net that would be politically untenable here in the U.S. And it's far more generous, but you pay a lot more in taxes. And, you know, we we tend to be more focused on that sort of Emersonian self-sufficiency and, yeah, do-it-yourself bootstrapping kind of thing. And I think that helps us in many ways in innovation. Um, I think our regulatory structure is a lighter touch than you see in other countries, which you can argue whether that's good or bad. I do think that it's shown up in a lot of the innovations that have come in the financial industry, like robo-advisors, like exchange-traded products. And, uh, and I think that's been a, a net benefit for us here. Uh, to wrap up, for like our listener in Uganda who wants to start investing or these other countries where maybe it's not so easy, like what are they supposed to do? Uh, the principles of this investment game are the same everywhere. I mean, keep fees low, keep a long time horizon, and buy great businesses. It's pretty simple. Um, It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. There are barriers that I don't know about for specific cases like in Uganda, and you don't have to keep talking specifically yeah. about Uganda. I just, that was just I my, want, <laughs> for example. I, I hope I love like the edge case example though, and I think that's I don't a, it's a really didn't have working knowledge it's a of really, Uganda's investing. Well, it's a really system. interesting question for that person, but low fees, long time horizon, and follow the sort of foolish principles of buying and holding stocks for the long term. The Vanguard Total World Stock ETF, symbol VT, it owns stocks from all over the world. If you're looking for one investment that has global exposure to everything, that's the one. Hey, Brian, thanks for joining us. This has been very interesting conversation. I said that made it sound like I didn't believe that. This has been a really interesting conversation. Thanks yeah, for joining us that today. Sound, that sounds like, uh, hey, how do I look today? Uh, your shirt is colorful. <laughs> Kind of thing. <laughs> thank, thank you for having me. This is fun. I love talking about this stuff, and um, I appreciate you letting me get my geek on here. And talk, <laughs> talk international investing. We love a good getting your geek on <laughs> here at Motley Full Answers. <laughs> Thanks. 
In honor of President's Day, Robert decided to dig into the personal finances of our great leaders. And perhaps, not surprisingly, he learned that just because you're sitting in the White House, it doesn't mean you're a great budgeter. That's so you true. have some lessons for us today from presidents past. Yes, and so the formula for financial success, we kind of all know, it's live below your means, avoid debt, and diversify your investments. Probably all know that. We don't always uh, follow those rules, and neither do all our past presidents. So I'm going to give you five examples of presidents who didn't exactly follow those. Number one, Ulysses S. Grant. Anyone know what the S stands for? Anyone? Anyone? Not saver. Yeah, that's true. And it actually stands for nothing. That really wasn't oh. his, his name. Was Hiram Ulysses Grant, but then when a congressman nominated him for West Point, he put Ulysses S. Grant, and he just decided to stick with it. Nonetheless, after his presidency, he was um, went on a very lavish tour around the world, spent too much of his money, and then he invested $100,000 into a brokerage firm that was started by his son and a friend. Unfortunately, that friend was borrowing using the securities in the investment firm as collateral. We've talked a little bit about this. That's great if everything goes up. If not, then your collateral becomes worth nothing. Is the leveraging thing we talked about? Leverage is margin. Margin. margin, On margin. On margin. So, things went south, investments get wiped out, Grant puts a little bit more money in, he loses everything. So, towards the end of his life, he is pretty much penniless. Mark Twain convinces him to write his memoirs, which oh. he finishes before he dies. In the end, those royalties um, earn almost a half a million dollars for his family. He was dead, but he does have the largest mausoleum in North America. So while you can't take it with you, you can live in something that your money paid for. How's that? You can huh? leave it behind. You can leave it behind for other people to visit and see your bones. Number four, Harry S. Truman. S stands for? Not saver. No, nothing. Again. His middle name is S. Oh. To honor two of his grandparents. Anyways, uh, so young guy, he invests in a mineral company, an oil company, loses everything, fights in World War I. He starts a men's clothing store in Kansas City with one of his army buddies. Huh. That goes under eventually. I think he, he has to live with his in laws. Then gets into public service, is the president, comes out of the, of the presidency without actually not much money. Um, so in I think it was 1958, it was the first time Congress enacted a pension for presidents, and part of it was they think out of sympathy for Harry S. Truman, who really didn't have much money. And when Medicare um, was signed into law in '65, Johnson signed it at the Harry S. Truman Library, and Harry and Bess were the first Medicare, first two people to get Medicare cards. So they were definitely people who needed the help of the government. Uh, so the third president, William Henry Harrison, ninth president. You probably don't know much about him because he has the distinction of being anyone, anyone, the president with the shortest. Um, That's right. He gave a speech. He died because he contracted something from his inaugural right. speech. He, right. He, he served as president for like thirty-two days, um, and his problem. He was a farmer. He went off to be basically the ambassador to Colombia. While he was gone, the crops failed. His sons didn't manage it very well, so he came back to a lot of debt. Um, so by the time he was president and died, he actually didn't have a whole lot of money. This was the guy who is like, it was really, really cold, and he's like, I don't need a coat. I'm just going to give my speech because I'm a tough man. And right. then he died. And then he died. There's some debate about whether actually that's how he got the pneumonia, but regardless, he was not president very long. Number two, Thomas Jefferson. We all know him. 
He would, um, but he's huge in Virginia. He was, and at one point was one of the wealthiest people in Virginia. But like a lot of people who own land and property, you can be land wealthy and cash poor. Right. So he owed a lot of money, um, and he also had expensive tastes. Building Monticello was not cheap. Um, he was owed a lot of money by other people. He wasn't great at collecting it. He signed loans for other people that he eventually became responsible for. Towards the end of life, he came up with a scheme in which he would, was going to have a lottery by which someone could win some of his property. I think it was even his estate. He got talked out of that. But by the time he passed away, he owed what I think that then was $100,000, which now would be you know, millions of dollars. Yeah. Um, and his heirs basically didn't get anything. All his stuff had to be sold. All right, time for number one. And time for number one. And this is the success Does story that of the president. Sound like a drum roll. Yeah, that was. By the way, President's Day. I don't know if you knew this. Is actually not an official holiday, federal wise. It's actually Washington's birthday officially. Oh. In the federal books, states have it as President's Day. So we're going to end here with Washington. Oh. Uh, who also had a lot of land. Yes, not far from here, like eight miles That's from here. That's true. Uh, he, fortu- he, he made the wise decision of marrying Mary Custis, who at that time was one of the wealthiest women in Virginia. He still was in a lot of debt, eventually got paid off because he inherited some money. But even when he went to his inauguration in New York City for the first inauguration, he had to borrow money to be able to get up there. Wow. The smart thing that he did was tobacco farming actually was not that profitable. What he did was he diversified his investments, living on the Potomac. He saw those fish going by and thought, you know what, I got to make money from the fish. So he had a fishery. He also eventually built what was one of the biggest whiskey distilleries in the country, down by the grist mill. Those of us at the Motley Fill know, yeah, that. know that. Right. So by doing all of those things, in the end, he ended up being debt free and being very wealthy when he passed away. Oh, so that was a success story. That's the success story. Oh. From, for the president who had to borrow money to get to his own inauguration to being a wealthy guy when he passed away. And nowadays, once you're done being a president, you go on a speaking tour, you go work for some lobbying firm. You got it good. Like The money starts rolling in after you're done being president. You do. When did they first learn that trick? Which one? The speaking tour. The speaking tour? That's a good question. I don't know. We should go on a speaking tour. We should. After we're we're president. After we're president. Put that on our list of things to do. You don't like all those other people? Vote us. That's going to do it for today, kids. The show is edited presidentially by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Answers Podcast. Please do. Please do. Again, fool.com forward slash answers survey. Answers plural survey. It's five questions. And as promised, a video of me making an idiot of myself in a very international sort of way for Robert Brokamp I'm Allison Southwick Fool on Fool on